0: I always led by example. I was just the hard worker. I'm the I'm first one in, last one out. The hard worker, hard worker. Work harder, work harder. And at some point, you're like, I'm on a hamster wheel here.
1: That's Jan Dills, founder of Jan Dills Attorneys at Law, the largest female founded law firm in the country.
0: It took years to get this done because things change. As you scale, processes change as fast, so you have to keep changing, changing. But it was a start. And that really the key was getting the foundation and the core and who we are and then building from there. I'm Michael Mogul, founder and CEO of CRISP, the nation's number one law
1: firm growth company. I've built my business through practice, not theory. CRISP started with just $500 to my name and has grown to over eight figures in revenue over the last few years, earning a spot on the Inc. 500 list of the fastest growing private companies in America. Our approach has been to take everything we've learned about generating massive growth within our own organization and help the country's most ambitious and committed law firm owners do the same for theirs. In each episode of this podcast, I sit down with innovative market leaders from the legal industry and beyond to learn from those who thrive in the face of adversity, challenge the status quo, and define what it means to be a true game changer. I sat down with Jan Dills to discuss the origin and evolution of our iconic jingle, how to transform criticism into fuel for growth, and how to scale your impact and leave a lasting legacy.
0: You always have to think about making sure that your clients are taken care of and your team's taken care of. And now that all I wanna do is, is develop my team and so that we have great quality representation and but also having my team be very comfortable who they are and developing them. So to me now it's more about legacy.
1: That's coming up on the Game Changing Attorney podcast. Before we begin today's episode, I want to remind you that we aren't beholden to any sponsors or run any ads on this podcast. This allows us to present all of our episodes raw and unfiltered. I'm not going to push any made to order meal services on you or try to save you any money on your car insurance. That being said, I have one small request. If you receive any value from this podcast, please give it a five-star review. Pay the fee so we can keep this podcast free. As the visionary behind the largest female founding law firm in america jan bills is one of the most inspirational leaders in the legal industry today her firm employs over 150 team members across six offices and has served tens of thousands of clients across west virginia however jan's path to success was filled with adversity i began our conversation by asking her about her early years
0: well i grew up in my family business in the family car business a family ford dealership sold cars in the summers um, once i got to college worked in the business In high school reception service department. But once I got to college, I wanted a bigger role, was the first female um, salesman that my dad didn't technically hire, but hired. And so I was the first female salesman and did that over over the summer and and earned some money. So to buy computers and books and things like that at school.
1: So you got an MBA, and I imagine then having worked at the car dealership, I think you mentioned to me before that growing up the plan was almost to work at Ford. Right.
0: Right. So I always thought the Ford dealership um, wasn't an option for me, um, being a female, and I was in a traditional family. I had an older brother who um, was running the business, and I got to know the Ford reps and that kind of thing. And just thought that that's where I would go. I would be more corporate. Business was my undergrad. I had marketing and economics. I went on to get my MBA, and then I came home for Christmas break. And my brother um, worked in the dealership and went into my brother's office. He's like, what are you doing, you know, when you graduate? I said, well, I thought about doing this and, and telling him my plan. He said, but you've talked about being an attorney before. And I said, yeah. I said, but it's a little late. Application's already over. He said, this, "He goes, it's never too late. He said, you need to apply. And so I left there and, and did that and took the LSAT in February of the following year and was accepted as a late acceptance.
1: And when you got to law school, I'm curious, like did you feel, just even with your business background, did you feel you were in the right place, like, this is the path for me?
0: I felt like that until my first year of law school. <laughs> so once I got there, it was um, property and contracts and just not interested in a lot of that first year, as any lawyer knows, that, that first year, first year and a half. Then I started concentrating in different fields, um, more in the business field, corporate field, state planning. And that's what I concentrated in and I felt more at home at that point.
1: I guess then fast forwarding from law school, shortly after passing the bar, I mean, quite shortly after passing the bar, I think it was almost two days, you get thrown into the deep end, if if you can speak to that.
0: Well, in the middle of law school, I married my husband. We'd been married 29 years. I ended up having to stay in in my hometown, a little town of Parkersburg, West Virginia. So at that point, Corporate law wasn't part of the program, so I had to change gears, and I went to work for a local attorney, a brilliant criminal attorney, also had a PI practice, and then I was admitted to the bar in October. Shortly thereafter, he was um, had to take a leave of absence, and it was supposed to be three months, ended up being a year, and his deal was, here are my cases, hundreds of, of criminal cases. I'll pay your rent and you stay here and run the business as long as you keep my cases alive. And that's what I did.
1: Wow. Okay. So then what was going through your your head at the time? You're now officially a lawyer and and now here's all these different cases to take on. You're kind of, in a way, you're on your own.
0: Right. I'm on my own. So no salary at that point. He said, sorry, I can't pay you. He had already been paid for his cases. I wasn't getting paid there. I got on the court appointed list. I uh, started taking divorces and real estate law, that kind of thing, and just, I was the only one there. I basically ended up hanging my shingle and didn't want to, but it was the best thing for me. And within days of being admitted into the bar, I was arguing a case in front of the state Supreme Court.
1: So then, in having worked in all these different practice areas, what led you to gravitate towards social security disability?
0: It really was a fluke. I was just sitting there and we're, you know, trying to pay the bills. I was three months behind on my uh, house payment because I thought I was going to have a a decent salary. And one employee was left from his practice. Everybody else had left. And there was one employee, Alice, that stayed for free, by the way, because I couldn't pay her. And she said, we're getting all these calls for Social Security, because he at one time had a huge uh, Social Security practice. She goes, "You just start doing these cases. And I said, I don't know how to do those. And she's like, well... You're learning everything from scratch. What's the difference? And so she goes, I'll teach you. So we started taking them. And by the time a year was up, I had over 100 cases because then it was word of mouth. Once I took one case um, and started working on it, it brought back memories for me. When I was about 12 years old, I went to the Social Security building with my aunt, who was sick, and she wasn't able to work anymore. And I remember going in into the waiting room there and, and sitting there with her and watching her just not be treated very well. And I still get emotional about it. And that just kind of clicked with me when I said, when I started taking my first case and started going through it, I'm like, this is what she was doing. This is the process. Because they didn't teach social security law in law school. When I got out and started doing that, I just knew, I knew that's what I wanted to do. First case.
1: And then, you know, when you went off you know, on your own, I think this was in, in 94, the realizing, I think, I guess, Social Security, it had to be a volume practice. I mean, how did that influence how you would, would, right. would run the practice?
0: I hadn't been around anybody who had done it. I had a lot of people, you know, other attorneys asking me, you know, what are you going to do? And I said, you know, I was doing everything to pay the bills. And so, you know, Social Security, there's such a lag. At that time, there was four years from the time you take a case to the time you go to a hearing. It was a four-year weighing process at that point. It's now two, but then the attorneys would be like, "How are you gonna make money at that?" Because you know f- the fee was capped at that point, and it, it still is, but it was much smaller. And, and you know, and I just knew from my business background that it had to be a volume practice, and you had to do things real efficiently. It's not—it's not like a PI practice where their profit margins are so much better, but it was definitely a practice that. You had to be efficient, and you had to do a volume.
1: And with volume, I guess, comes advertising, and I imagine there's not a whole lot of that going on in really nationwide, and especially in, in West Virginia at the time.
0: So that is uh, completely correct. So back in, you know, talking about 94 and early 95, the phone book rep came in, and the back of the phone book was available, and I bought the back of the phone book. Um, had no way of paying for it. I couldn't even pay for the secretary that was you know, outside my door, but... He came in and I was like, this is the way it needs to be. And because to you can't, if it, no one knows you or has heard about you, and I just came out of law school, then how do they know what you do?
1: And then I guess shortly after the phone book, I guess the uh, the other advertising starts to pick up. I imagine you start to, to to gain some traction and start to see some success there. Did that kind of lead you to, to start to invest more and more in advertising?
0: It did. I started with the phone book. Of course, I came from car dealership. So my dad was big on advertising and so I was familiar with the, you know the traditional advertisers the TV radio and newspaper so when I started after the phone book and then I would move I moved in 97 I cut my first commercial that's when I really realized the power of it
1: and I guess a, a prevalent theme across your life is, is really not taking no for an answer. Today I know you have that also like trademarked and there's the jingle, and I'd love to hear about the origin of the jingle because I think that played that yeah. a very important role in, in the growth of the firm.
0: Chandil's attorney in at law, she won't take no for an answer. You tried to collect but you were denied. The jingle that I have is not the original jingle. It's like the fifth jingle, by the way. I went through four jingles, and I just didn't like it. And it just wasn't me, and it was just hokey. And I thought, not this this isn't hokey, but... So this person that formulated this jingle sat down and talked to me and said, well, tell me about your life. And I would just went around and, you know, I just... We had a long conversation about how I got here, the perseverance coming through, you know, with my, my dad's a wonderful human being, but he motivated me without knowing he motivated me. So just applying to law school saying, yeah, you'll never get in and going back before that. Many times where he would just say, you can't do that. And then that would just motivate me more. So when I was talking to the, to the gentleman, that's how that came about.
1: And, and even with a jingle, I, I don't know what you thought about jingles in general, whether that would work or not. Um, from what I recall, you were even reluctant to even take that meeting. I think you you did it as a favor.
0: I did. I, so, the reason I did the jingle was a friend of mine went to school with him. It was a radio rep. He thought, hey, this would be a great idea. I'm like, I'm already getting a lot of flack from my peers about being on TV. The you know, last thing I wanted to do was put a jingle on top of that. but good family friend. I said, I'll, I'll take the call. And once I did that, I started seeing the value and I had to put away the, the fear of being different and putting myself out there. And once we created it, I knew it was the right jingle.
1: What do you think about it made it so successful?
0: I don't know, but I, can, I wish I did know what was the secret sauce to that jingle. But I have generations come to me singing that jingle. It just... You hear it once and it doesn't leave you. It's such a common saying, won't take no for an answer. It's just such a common saying. And then singing in that, in that long drawn out <laughs> tone, I think is part of it. And it's just easy to remember. Gentle-
1: So then what type of impact did it make on the firm? I'm, I'm curious, just from the time oh, that wow. like, you decided to do it, it goes up, how long did it, did it take until you started to see an actual impact and then what was the uh, impact?
0: About 2000, it was, I went on the radio with it and did that first before I cut a commercial with it. It was instant feedback. Now, I'm not saying it's positive feedback, but instant feedback. I got, I don't want to say crucified. But I, my peers did not care for it, put it that way.
1: And I want to talk about that because, so the West Virginia legal community, its I know they didn't care for the jingle. It seemed that they actually didn't care much for lawyers' advertising, and especially female law firm owners, and then just, just in general, everything that you were doing at the time.
0: No, they uh, did not. So that gets launched in 2001. I stay local with it. Huge success, double-digit growth intake. So what I, I mean, I wanted people, my goal with marketing was when someone thinks Social Security or says Social Security, they think Jandil's. That was it. That was my directive to my marketing people, which was TV and radio. So when the jingle, you know, stayed local, and then in 2002, I said something, and then after a hearing, I said, I might go to Charleston. And he's like, you're not gonna be able to break in here. He goes, there's no way. Um, Because Charleston judges did all their outlying areas. And I said, why not? And he's like, well, one, you're an outsider and and you're a female. Okay. So, perfect.
1: He hadn't heard the jingle?
0: (laughs) Yeah, he's heard the jingle. He's like, that won't work here. And so I said, all right. I had to do it at that point. And I um, went into the Charleston market hard, wanting to own the market. And there was... (laughs) um, many competitors for what I did there and just cutting through the the legal community. And so I started doing that. And shortly thereafter, I started getting written up in the newspapers there.
1: In what sense?
0: Being negative about um, lawyer jingles, being named, just how it's uh, degrading the profession, that kind of thing. And I then had the um, state Supreme Court and the state legislature draft up a bill and push the fact that um, wanting to change lawyer advertising with me as the poster child.
1: That we won't take no for an answer bill.
0: Yes. Wow. At first, they, they first tried to get me disbarred by um, saying that I am promising something that I could not achieve, will not take no for an answer. is saying that I'm guaranteeing a win, is their argument. The state ethics board said no, that's not what she's saying. It's a term of art. And so I had to have that argument. But I spent time, it took time away from my business to do this. And I just opened up the Charleston uh, office. It started getting a little stressful for sure. And then the, the state legislature got, you know, put the bill. The state Supreme Court justice wanted to change the, our advertising rules in the state because of me. And I was just ended up on the front of the Charleston Gazette almost every week.
1: Man. I mean, did you ever think, okay, maybe I should dial this back? Or like, you know,
0: I didn't think I should dial it back, but my parents did, my husband. You know, I had a lot of people saying, why don't you just change the words or just say the, the tagline? Not, we don't have to sing it or all that kind of thing. And I'm like, no, it's, there's nothing wrong with what we're doing. I'm not, and if I don't, you know, if I don't advertise, then how does anybody going to know? How am I going to be able to help people? What if there are a lot of people out there like my aunt who went and was told no, my aunt was told no. She could not receive social security disability. She just quit. She never never appealed that decision. She didn't know any better. And there were so many people out there just like her. So I just was not going to do that. So then what,
1: what was the outcome of this, of this bill?
0: The outcome of the bill was they formed a committee And so I had to actually obtain a lawyer to help me through this. Like, I was going to be sued. I was going to be attacked. And so I hired a lawyer that was recommended to me by the judges and the Social Security judges because they saw what was happening. And they said, you know, see this gentleman. He's well-respected in the community. I said, great. It happens to be that they um, had this person, this attorney head the committee to change the advertising rules. So whether or not the advertising rules need to be changed. And so what basically wanted to do is have all the advertising, lawyer advertising, be restricted, no jingles, and have to be pre-approved. And so the committee convened. He put together attorneys, non-attorneys on this committee. I was ended up being on that board.
1: So that's convenient, right?
0: It was nice, I wasn't expecting it, but it was interesting.
1: So then after, you know, essentially, once this thing gets shot down, do you build confidence and do you go in even, you know, do you push in even further or like what what happens next?
0: Well, what it did is it got my name out there. I ended up being all over the state. And it was, really broke me into the Charleston market. It really increased my business, uh, even though it had put, I think it took years off my life, but, it definitely increased my business, so then I just went full steam, and I went into, Beckley, Logan, Huntington, and then um, eventually I went into Charlotte, North Carolina.
1: It's interesting. So when you think about just advertising in general, it really is all about attention, because some could argue, okay, you're getting bad attention, but you're getting your name out, and you didn't really have to pay for that type of advertising. So in a way, there's there's free impressions there. I'm curious in, in terms of like as the firm is growing, what's what was a day in the life like? You know, how are you spending your time?
0: So. Before I learned how to scale, <laughs> I was the business, right? So didn't have any other attorneys at the beginning. I had a you know a couple employees, was the intake specialist, was the copy repair man. <laughs> I was uh, you know, going to court, I was traveling, had all these offices I was manning. So uh, running a business, it, it just became a crazy time. So in 97 I had my my first son, uh, Hayden. And in 2003, I had um, Spencer, my second son. And I actually opened up Charleston office and went into labor same month. But it was very difficult. But I would get up at 2 in the morning. I did this for probably 12 years. From about 2 to 4, I would prepare, um, finish preparing for my day of hearings. I had hearings almost every day. And I'd have uh, anywhere from 4 to 6 to 7 hearings a day. And so I would finish preparing because I would also prepare the night before. I felt my health was very important, so I also would then work out at 4, had a trainer. Then I would have to be usually on the road by 6, especially with the Beckley or going to Huntington or or to Charleston because all hearings were done in person at that point. I would then have my hearings, see new clients, and then head home. And so I would head home probably 6 p.m., because I was bringing in, you also bring in new clients and then hopefully see my kids to kiss them goodnight and then start on the next day.
1: Wow. So not a whole lot of work-life balance then?
0: There wasn't any, no.
1: Do you think, I mean, if you go back to that period in time, it just, cause this is one of those things, I think today people are hearing this, you can interpret it in different ways, but could you have grown the firm the way that you did then had you not, you know, had the habits that you did at that time?
0: I don't believe so. I think there's ways to do it, I'm sure, but not any way that I see that I could have done differently. You know, it's tough, but it's it's hard work. It's absolutely hard work. But to build something, that's the way, for me, it had to be done.
1: And speaking of this, I mean, while you're doing all this, obviously you're running a practice, you're trying cases, you're meeting with clients, you're also a mom, you've got a family. What what are some of the trade-offs at the time? We've talked about it's like Mother's Day brunches and vacations, what, what do those look like?
0: Yeah, that's it's hard for me to talk about. But first of all, not everyone has a supportive family and a supportive uh, spouse like I have had and have. Again, we've been married 29 years, very supportive. So he would have to fit in a lot for me. I also would try to make sure that I knew if it was a Mother's Day brunch, uh, like I would start realizing, hey, it's Mother's Day brunch. I need to mark off this day. Usually they have it on this day um, and not have a day of hearings or try to be in town at least um, for hearings. So I would started controlling my schedule a little bit better, but it, yes, I it was very tough. My kids didn't know any different, but it was not the work-life balance. The squeaky wheel got the grease
1: and i'm curious just all along the way just as as the firm is growing you're getting all this criticism and then also the, the different trade-offs and sacrifices you know why do all this and why you know why continue to press forward i mean even when the firm got to a pretty good size you continue to grow and you could have probably gotten to a point where you said okay i think we're at a you know we're at a good point and we've got consistent clients and cases coming in and
0: i would say it's just because i had to win and and i had to win for my clients and if i was doing my job correctly they would have a life and they would have an income and they wouldn't lose their house and their truck and their family. So it was me that had to, had to help.
1: Yeah. Well, what you're describing, obviously there's, there's the purpose of doing the work that you were doing and the people that you were helping. How important was money at the time?
0: Well, um, not all, but 90% of the, any income I made went right back into the business. All of that was going for employees, infrastructure, marketing sometimes was, I was spending more in marketing than I was ever making. It all all went back into the business, except for a small portion. And that's when you really have to have an understanding spouse.
1: Yeah, I, I remember you mentioned, I think even the first several years, like oh, how much were you paying yourself?
0: Like 20 or something. Yeah. I no, I think I think I got myself up to 50.
1: Yep, 50,000 a year. <laughs> yeah, yep. It's pretty good for what, 80, 100-hour 80, work week?
0: Oh, it's just like crazy. And my husband's like, what are you doing, you know? And he's like, if you just didn't spend all that money on marketing this would be a lot easier.
1: Yeah. So then, I mean, I guess as the firm grows, I think at this point, it must have been what, 2008, 20 plus team members, you've grown, you've expanded. And I mean, there've been a lot of like pivotal moments, but I think there's one, if, if you're open to talking about it and sharing it, sure. that took place then. Well,
0: in 2007, started making money. And so I put all that money into the VA business. So we're building the VA business. But in 2008, I hit a, definitely a roadblock in June of 2008, I was diagnosed with breast cancer. I've been pretty open about that and I've done some public speaking in in my hometown for support for breast cancer survivors, but it definitely woke me up. I wish it didn't happen. I wish I didn't have to go through the stress and the fear and the treatment, but um, looking back on it, it was a good thing.
1: And what type of, I mean, just when that happened, how did Mm -hmm. that impact your day-to-day, how you would run the firm?
0: I just realized then, first of all, foremost, my kids have to know who I am. And I was there and, and you know, present, you know, weekends, you know, I did a lot, as, as much as I could at school for them. But I was like, this has to change. I can't be that person that works 60, 80 hours a week. I have to figure out how to scale this business.
1: So then what happens next? How, how does it change the approach? Because I know at the time, you were very much in the business. I think you kind of transitioned to now working on the business. I, what, what were some of the decisions that you made then?
0: I had to grow as a leader. So I always led by example. I was just the hard worker. I'm the I'm first one in, last one out. The hard worker, hard worker, work harder, work harder. And at some point, you're like, I'm on a hamster wheel here. And so I have to figure out how to do this. So I went back and went back to the basics You know, read Good to Great, E Myth, How to Win Friends and Influence People, uh, the 21 Laws of Leadership, just went back to the basics and said, I've got to scale this business and went back to the core, the core values. Who are we? So, the core values and started developing those. You think those would have been easy to do? I had a team of 26, and I picked a handful of people and said, Let's, who are we? You know, so when I'm not here, Decisions can be made on long as these core values. So I started there and then started getting things that were in my head and in my team's head down on paper. And they became SOPs and manuals. And that wasn't something I said, okay, I'm going to do this now and then I'm, I'm good to go. It took years to get this done because things change. As you scale, processes change as fast, so you have to keep changing, changing. But it was a start. And that really the key was getting the foundation and the core and who we are and then building from there.
1: And I imagine it it was tough to let go, right? Because (sighs) you wanted to maintain the the standard of excellence and how things were being done. How did you learn to eventually do that?
0: It was was one painful thing taken away at at a time. I first um, gave up HR, gladly, by the way. If I try to do everything in the firm, I am a master of nothing. And so... Just things that I was probably weakest at. I'm I'm very operationally based, so I I felt pretty good there. And I had a great um, person with me that was very operational-minded. So I first thing I did was HR. And um, then I had to become a leader. And that doesn't come naturally for me. But it, it took me from 2008 until 2016 to fully get to where I th- felt the firm wasn't outgrowing me.
1: And today, I mean, I guess now looking back, how important do you think like the firm culture is and like uh, the people, the team.
0: So, you know, now I have 155 employees. I am a female-based firm. 85% of my team are females. And so we have, you know, work-life balance, we have we have all these, you know, the issues that that come with owning a large firm and I spend more time with my work family than I do with my home family. And I just wanted to make sure that, you know, the culture was a place where it's a safe haven. Our virtual walls, our actual four walls are a safe haven for our employees. And that's how I started with culture. And then as I I grew that, I was diagnosed again, was diagnosed with cancer, breast cancer in 2008 and 2012. And then again in 15 and 16, by the way. So once those life events started happening, you know, what's most important in life are relationships. And I just wanna make sure that my team grows as individuals inside our walls and outside our walls. And so my focus since then with your help, Michael, and it's what drew me to, to Crisp was growing my team as great and good humans.
1: And again, it's just almost through necessity, making sure that the firm was not you know solely dependent on you. And, and I think in doing so and building a great team and a great culture, how did that then influence how you would spend your time?
0: It, it was very important because as, as time went on, um, I wanted to make sure that you always have to think about making sure that your clients are taken care of and your team's taken care of. And by developing them, that all that comes into play. It's all about for me right now, I've moved into different versions of my life and so it started out being the worker, being the technician and then moving into developing as a leader and now that all I wanna do is, is develop my team and so that we have great quality representation and but also having my team be very comfortable who they are and developing them. So to me now it's more about legacy.
1: And for women who are listening to this, they're obviously dealing with a lot of challenges in some cases where they're they're juggling family with work and let's say they they want to build a great practice. What what would you say to them?
0: I don't know why women are different than men. I mean, it's the way we are. It is culturally. I I was brought up in a very traditional family. We are expected to be the ones um, that can do it all. Whereas no one really asks the man that. So... Just want to kind of put that out there. So, I'm hoping over time that changes, but I understand what you're saying. And because I felt a lot of balance issues and feel like I'm failing. So, I was failing, couldn't do everything I could at at work. I was failing with my family, you know, as a wife, also. So, it's a lot of guilt. And you just got to be to yourself and say, you're good enough and be okay with that. But there is no there's no such thing as work-life balance in anybody's work life. You really do go to the squeaky wheel, but, but I think women should forgive themselves and not expect to be superwoman.
1: And today, I mean, you you have over 150 team members, six offices, I mean, the firm has grown just, in West Virginia, I think it's the, is it the largest disability firm, probably one of the largest disability firms just nationally, period. Uh, period, yeah. What, uh, what's driving you today?
0: Developing my team, uh, legacy, making sure that we you know, maintain quality and represent our clients. And I just really, really enjoy what I do. And you know, as you scale your business and you hire great people and surround yourself with great people, how much better your firm is, how much better quality of work you do, even though you think you did great quality, but hiring good people, getting that structure around you, your life becomes better and that work-life balance kind of comes, you get a little bit better balance and you're able to enjoy life a lot, a lot more than you used to.
1: It's interesting. I, I once heard the saying that one of the most insidious forms of child neglect is for a parent to not pursue their full potential <laughs> and to be an example for their children. What, what are your thoughts on that?
0: You know, I've, I've talked to my kids about it. Um, as if they got an older, you know, now they're 25 and 19 they don't have any, they've never had any ill will about it or, you know, even though as, as a mom, you always have that guilt, you always have that mom guilt. But I'm pretty positive I would be a horrible stay-at-home mom. I am the happiest with them when I am succeeding in this other part of my life, in which is work.
1: So, and then speaking of that, how, how do you define success?
0: Well, I think, you know, that's changed over time. I don't know if that does you know, for other people, but success for me has always been, helping people and so and being the best at it. Money is something, a byproduct of doing great work. And I've been very fortunate in all of aspects of that, of helping people, having a quality firm and be able to make lives for my employees where they never dreamt that they could do. I would say that's how you define a success.
1: And you know, I know you mentioned legacy. If you can briefly touch on kind of the impact that you've made, not just for your team members, because I, I know you mentioned this kind of like a new program that you introduced in terms of like helping them improve their lives, and then also in your in your community, some of the things that you've been doing.
0: Well, giving back. Um, I come from a, a long line of family. My dad did it. Um, my grandfather did that. We always give back to those um, that have given to you and. We uh, developed the Jan Dills Foundation where we raise money all year long. Uh, My husband and I uh, give to the community in West Virginia and United States uh, over $100,000 a year. Some of the programs that we do are operation transportation which we founded where we give free bus passes to all our veterans in the Wood County area. We also um, national scholarships for school for our veterans. um, And um, we um have we have your six. we donate all the money for them, so we support a lot of agencies where where they're you know their sole support to run their programs.
1: and then I uh, think you mentioned this to me briefly on your team. what is kind of the I forget the name of the program, but it's something about just the
0: good human goal? Yes. so we do um weekly one on-ones uh, with our team. Part of that is you know our KPIs, what's worked well, what hasn't worked well. But always on that goal, on that sheet is, how did you become a better human this week? And so it's a better human goal. And it could be, I listened to a podcast, I gave back in my community, I strongly encourage my team to be on boards, or to be volunteer in the community. And so it's more on, how did I improve outside my, these walls, and being a better human?
1: And Jan, as we come to a close, you're certainly a game changer. This being the Game Changing Attorney podcast, what does being a game changer mean to you?
0: Being a game changer is, it's that top 1.1%, as you always talk about, Michael. And it's a lot of things wrapped up, but it's more than just having growth because everybody can kind of do that, but it's scaling that growth. So you're having a quality representation producing that foundation where you have a great firm with the core values and the and the uh, KPIs, and the training and all those things, and obtaining great culture, so that you can all, not only make a difference in your clients' lives, but also your team members.
1: I want to give a huge thank you to Jan Dills for taking the time to speak with us today. You know, what particularly resonated with me was when Jan said that when you invest in your people, they'll be more invested in their careers, your clients, your firm, and your vision. If you found this episode valuable, here are three free ways that I can help you grow your law firm. Number one, download the first chapter of my book absolutely free at GameChangingAttorney.com. Number two, you can shoot me a text at 404-531-7691 and I'll answer any question that you've got for me. And finally, number three, if you can leave this podcast a five-star review, it'll help us gain access to more influential thought leaders and bring their lessons learned here to you. For more information on our interview with Jan Dills, see the show notes for this episode in your podcast app or visit gamechangingattorney.com.